I was so humiliated. It was the most humiliating experience of my life. When we make those kind of statements, speaking of being humiliated, we often mean that we were embarrassed, uh, laughed at, somebody made fun of us, maybe ridiculed us or even degraded us um, in front of others, perhaps. And for most of us, while at the time those events may seem monumental, the occasions really are few, generally quite slight, often the result of our own poor judgment and mistakes. But this morning we're going to examine what real humiliation is. Theologians speak of the humiliation of Christ, and, and when we hear that phrase and we think of it theologically, it is natural for us to immediately think of the crucifixion of Jesus, and without doubt, it was the culmination of humiliation. But while it was the, the apex of, of Jesus' humiliation, it was only a part of it. His humiliation was not limited to a few events in his life. His entire life upon the face of this earth was that of humiliation. Even the images that we see this time of year of a newborn babe in a manger so peacefully portrayed on, on Christmas cards or Jesus in his flowing robes that we see in Sunday school curriculum. In actuality, it was utter humiliation. The very incarnation was humiliation. And it is this great doctrine of the humiliation of Christ that I want us to examine together on this Sunday that's leading up toward Christmas during these days. Turn, if you would, this morning to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Very, very familiar verses to us. And from these verses, we're going to consider Jesus' humiliation. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, from these verses, I want to make four observations concerning Jesus' humiliation. The first is this. Jesus' humiliation was voluntary. Jesus' humiliation was voluntary. Look again at verses 6 through 8. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now there are some key phrases in those few verses that stress the voluntary nature of Jesus' humiliation. Verse 7 says, He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Verse 8 says, He humbled Himself. And in each of those phrases, the unmistakable emphasis is on the, the action that was taken by Jesus Himself. What He did. The active voice is used in those verses indicating that Jesus took the action. He did the emptying. He took the form of a bondservant. He humbled Himself. Now it's true that there are many passages that speak of Jesus being sent by the Father. Jesus Himself acknowledged that and and that He did not act independently apart from the Father. John 7, 28, Jesus said, I have not come of My own accord. He who sent Me is true. John 8.42, I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. But there are also many passages that speak of Jesus' coming and in which the active voice is used indicating that Jesus took the action. John 12.46, I have come into the world as light. John 6.38, I have come down from heaven. And so the Father's sending and the Son's coming are in perfect agreement. It is inconceivable that there would not be perfect agreement within the Godhead. Now, if any question remains over the voluntary humiliation of Jesus, listen to His words in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Certainly, Jesus' humiliation was not because He had no power or no authority. Verse 6 though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now the word form there refers to his nature as the NIV clarifies. In this verse, referring to his divine nature. On the other hand, reference to equality in this verse is is not referring to his nature, but, but to the manner of his existence, the condition that his form took. And so, in short, Jesus didn't insist on retaining His heavenly splendor and majesty and glory and and showing off His divine nature to demonstrate His equality with God the Father. In the Incarnation, Jesus was fully God. He was one essence with God the Father. Possessed all of the divine attributes. He had a divine nature or form, but he did not insist on on displaying all of that glory and power and majesty to evidence his equality with God the Father. Uh, Let me give you something of an, an interpretive paraphrase here. The Son of God, eternally existent as God, fully divine in nature, infinitely powerful, 
did not regard it necessary to cling to a manner or condition of existence that would show off his heavenly, majestic equality with God the Father, but humbled himself, voluntarily taking upon himself the nature of a man, even a servant. While Jesus is, was, and remained fully God, he voluntarily chose to lay aside the comforts, the splendor, all of the majesty and glory of heaven to come to seek and to save the lost. And he did so voluntarily. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We cannot even begin to comprehend how great that humbling was. The sacrifice of of voluntarily becoming man. The greatest men on the face of this earth Kings and presidents and CEOs and billionaires, were they to go out into the factories, the streets, voluntarily live among the poorest and neediest? That doesn't come close to picturing the voluntary sacrifice God the Son made in laying aside the splendor of heaven taking the form of a servant with all of its limitations and trials. If we could even imagine angelic beings doing that, it would pale in comparison to the very creator of the universe doing so. One author comments, Surely royalty in rags, angels in cells, is not descent compared to deity. In flesh. In our age that makes so much of seeking prestige and power and position and, and pleasure and, and, and possession, it's difficult to even imagine the voluntary condescension, condescension of Jesus' humiliation. Voluntarily voluntarily humbling himself. Second, Jesus' humiliation was substitutionary. It was substitutionary. And the substitutionary nature of Jesus' humiliation is seen in what he took up on himself. Verses 7 and 8. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus fully identified with man. First it says, he took the form of a servant. Now here's our word form again, same word that was used back in in the earlier verse. He did not just take on the appearance of a servant, he actually became a servant. He took on the nature of a servant, the nature of man. 
Now, some caution is necessary in this passage because there have been many uh, false notions promoted from these verses when it talks about Jesus emptying himself. Of what did he empty himself when he took the form of a bondservant? Human nature. What, of what did he empty himself? Well, he did not empty himself of his divine nature. He didn't empty himself of his divine form. He did not empty himself of any of his divine attributes. Because had he given up even one of his attributes, he would cease to be God. He emptied himself of the glorious splendor of his heavenly existence. The majesty that he had enjoyed in heaven. Now, it's also important to understand that in taking the nature of a servant, in taking human nature, he did not give up his divine nature. Christ existed in the form of God, divine nature. And he took the nature of a servant, human nature. He did not exchange those natures. He did not mix those natures up. He did not, uh, his, his divine nature was not turned into human nature. He possessed two, two forms, two natures, divine and human. He was fully God and fully man. One person, two natures, human and divine. And it was by the eternal word becoming flesh, the Son taking the form, the nature of a bondservant, Christ assuming human nature, that he became our substitute. A man for men. In becoming a bondservant, the lawgiver placed himself under the demands and the curse of the law. To be a substitute for man, he must himself be man. He must fulfill the law as man for men. He must pay the penalty for man's sin as man. Since it was man that broke God's law and needed reconciliation, it was only man that could fulfill the law, pay the penalty, and reconcile God and man. But he was also fully God. For only as God could he perfectly fulfill the law. Only as one who was sinless could he atone for the sins of others. And only as God could he fully pay the price of infinite value for the sins of many. Jesus had to be fully man to be a suitable substitute. And He had to be fully God to be a sufficient sacrifice and Savior. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. If Jesus Christ is not true God, how could He help us? If He is not true man, how could He help us? Now, the word bondservant here, or servant, conveys humanity, but, but more than humanity, it, it also communicates this idea of the lack of dignity, the, his 
subjection, his servitude, that his nature was not just that of a man, but of a slave, a servant. Our text goes on and it says that he was born in the likeness of men. And likeness stresses the the thoroughness of his identification with man. More than similarity, there is real likeness. Jesus did not assume his humanity in some regal, exalted, uh, royal way. Not in some glorified manner that would make him immune to hurts and, and suffering. But real humanity. And yet, likeness does not mean exactness. And so likeness here allows for differences. And there certainly were differences between Jesus as a man and you and I. Namely, one, Jesus' human nature was added to his divine nature, so he had two natures. And second, he was sinless. Hebrews 4.15 teach both the likeness and the difference. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. There's the likeness. Yet without sin. There's the huge difference. In becoming like men, he was fit to be our substitute. Hebrews 2.17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 8 in our text further states that Jesus was found in human form. And here, the word form, which the ESV uses, is, is different from the word in verses 6 and 7. I'm not sure why it's translated the same in English. Not all do that. It doesn't mean nature, but as the NIV and the uh, New American Standard render it, appearance. He was found in appearance as a man. External form. Appearance refers to the outward expression, the, the physical appearance and behavior. That, that Jesus lived among men as man. He, he was born and grew up in a home. Uh, he had an occupation. He talked the same language. He ate the same food. He got hungry and thirsty and tired. Uh, he dressed the same way. He observed the same customs. He was found in appearance, observed and recognized by men as man. And he even died as man. Verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in his death, more than anything else, we see the substitutionary nature of his humiliation. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Not only was his death itself humiliating, but it was the most humiliating of deaths. Painful, shameful. The death of a criminal, the death of a foreigner, the death of a slave. The death that among Jews was a sign of God's curse. Death by crucifixion on a cross. And that not for himself, 
but to save sinners. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The humiliation of the incarnation, the emptying of, of heavenly splendor, the taking of the form of a bondservant, the likeness and appearance of men, was that Christ might identify with sinful man and die as a substitute for his own. 2 Corinthians 5:21 For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 8:9 Though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that you might, by his poverty, become rich. Jesus' humiliation was substitutionary. Third, Jesus' humiliation was temporary. Temporary. And by that, I don't mean that he gave up his human nature again when he ascended. Jesus retained that, but now his humanity was glorified humanity, After the suffering came the glory. And so we cannot look at at Christ's humiliation without also looking at His exaltation, which we find in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus' prayer the night before His crucifixion, recorded in in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed That former majestic glory, the splendor of that heavenly existence. And the Father did that. Jesus was resurrected. He ascended. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 20 tells us, The Father raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And then verse 9 of our text goes on to state that as a part of that exaltation, God bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. Now Paul doesn't indicate what that name is yet. He waits a bit. But remember that a name in Scripture is not just a label that is attached to somebody. It often bespoke of some some event uh, in their life. It revealed the character, the being of the person. Sometimes the name is even used as a substitute for the person uh, himself. And so Paul tells us here in verse 10 that at that name, not just the mention of the name, but in honor of the name, by virtue of the power and the authority and the majesty of the person of Jesus, the object of our worship, every knee will bow, it says. 
not just the knees of believers who bow and worship, not just those who go to church, every knee. The knee of every man and woman and child, angels, demons, every rational being, those who are in heaven, it says, angels, demons, those on earth, all those who are living at the time Christ's return, all those under the earth, all of the dead, everyone will bow in submission to Jesus. Either in joyful, grateful worship as the believer or in fear and remorse in the case of the unbeliever. But every knee will bow to Him. And not only fall before Him, but verbally confess Him. Verse 11, And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here it seems as the name that He was referring to. Lord, Jesus Christ is Lord, King of kings, Lord of lords, Sovereign Lord, Divine Master. And every rational being will not only bow the knee, but confess Christ as Lord. Not just you and I who joyfully, gratefully worship Him by confessing His name as our Lord, But those who have blasphemed will confess Him as Lord. Those who have cursed Him. Those who have denied Him. Those who have profaned His name. The skeptic, the agnostic, the atheist, the doubter, the the slanderer, all will fall before Him and verbalize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The humiliation of Jesus was temporary. After the suffering came the glory, and now He is exalted. How do we apply such a great truth? We're to worship Him. We're to worship Him as the exalted Lord. We should willingly fall before Him in submission, recognizing Him, joyfully, gratefully confessing Him as Lord. And if you have not turned from sin and from self and turned to Christ in in wholehearted faith and repented of, of your sin, I would urge you to do that while you can do that willingly and worshipfully. Because one day, Your knee will bow. And your tongue will confess Him as Lord, even if unwillingly. So may we each willingly, joyfully, gratefully, worshipfully bow to Him, confess Him as the exalted Lord. And then fourth, Jesus' humiliation was exemplary. was exemplary. And here we're going to go back to the beginning of our text because it adds another application. Verse 5, 
Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, more more literally, this think ye. This thing, be minding. Verse 2, Paul exhorted the Philippians to be of one mind. And here he tells us what that, that mind is to be all about. It's the mind of Christ. They are to keep minding that which was in Christ, namely, His humility. Now, it's interesting, I think, to note that, that in this greatest discourse on the humiliation of Christ, this highly theological, doctrinal portion of Scripture, this text that has been so worked over and written about and debated, it comes to us here by way of example. It's not just theological reading for academics and students It's not just weighty materials for for scholars and Bible interpreters. It was given as practical instruction, as an example to be followed, to be lived out in life. In verses 3 and 4, Paul gave an exhortation to the Philippians and exhorted them to humility. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he follows that exhortation immediately with this example, the ultimate example of of humility, of humiliation, the humility of Christ. And so while this passage is a goldmine theologically, we must not just treat it as some academic exercise. We're not just to sit back and armchair theorize and theologize. We must do what Paul intended here. Take it to heart. Live it out. Doctrine apart from actions, theological abortion, isn't it? And though we have just looked at one of the greatest theological truths concerning Christ, we must not forget that it comes in the context here of a challenge to live a humble life. As followers of Christ, we're to follow His example of humility. Christ is the supreme example of, of humility. God of the universe, the Word made flesh, humbled Himself. Born in a barn, raised a common carpenter's son. His friends were fishermen. He ate with sinners. He associated with the sick and the poor and the needy. Had no place to lay his head. Girded himself with a towel and washed the dirty feet of his own students. Falsely accused. Died as a criminal. His life upon this earth was one of of humility from beginning to end. Incarnation through crucifixion. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ is the pattern for humility. Jesus' humility was exemplary. Not that our humiliation is exactly like His. Certainly our, our humility was not uh, and is not substitutionary in the sense that it's redeeming. But our humility is to be selfless. It is to be for the sake of others. 
Will we sacrifice position, pleasure, possession for the sake of another? It's to be voluntary, even if that means some rejection and suffering and trial along the way. And it's even temporary. It's only for this life. And by way of encouragement, we should note that even as, as the suffering and the humiliation of Jesus was followed by ex- exaltation, so is our humbling to be followed with exaltation. As those who are humble in Christ, those who have been crucified with Christ, those who have been united with Christ in His death and resurrection, those who have died to self. And so throughout the pages of Scripture, we find that God is opposed to the proud, but but gives grace to the humble. That whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The first will be last, the last first, the greatest least, the least greatest. And so Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Charles Spurgeon remarked, the more we are humbled in grace, the more we shall be exalted in glory. And one day, we who know Christ through faith will be exalted and share in His glory. So again, how shall we apply this passage of God's Word here concerning Jesus' humiliation? What is our response to this this great doctrine and example of the humiliation of Christ? We've noted one, that is to worship. To fall before Him, to confess Him as Lord, to worship Him. And the second is to follow His example. To have this attitude in ourselves which is in Him. To humble ourselves. So how do we do that? How do we develop that attitude? How do we become humble? Well, first we have to recognize that we can't do it ourselves. We cannot be humble in our own strength. Only by His grace, only by the strength that He supplies, can we be humble. If we boast of our ability to be humble, we have denied the very nature of humility, haven't we? It can't be done in our strength. It can only be done in our dependence upon Christ by the transforming power of His Spirit working in us, conforming us to the image of Christ. So I have to ask again, have you forsaken sin, self, turned from sin, turned to Christ? Are you relying on His righteousness? Are you depending on His substitutionary atoning death? Is He your Lord? Is He your Master? Have you surrendered to Him? Do you recognize your inability? Do you have the mind of Christ? With the force of great doctrine, Paul places before us the example of humility. Jesus Christ His humility. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In these weeks that are leading up to Christmas, as we prepare to celebrate the Incarnation, let's be mindful of the great humiliation of Jesus. And that, for us, as an example that we might follow his humility, but but more than that, his humiliation was to glorify God the Father. It was for our salvation, for our exaltation, and that we might share in His glory, in His very presence for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for these thrilling words, familiar words to us, words of challenge, words of encouragement and comfort. Words that, that prompt our worship. Father, may we bow in, in gratitude for the grace that you showed us in Christ Jesus. May we worship. And may we share with others the good news that they too might bow and worship and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. All to your glory, we pray in his name. Amen.